Well, good morning. Welcome. Glad you're here. There's uh, plenty of breakfast if you are still hungry or you want to get your third helping, have at it. Uh, no one's here to uh, rat on you, so your wife will never know. Um, glad you're here. Um, had the privilege of going uh, this last Friday out to Granbury um, to teach the guys out there. I think we had 28, 30 guys uh, out in Granbury, so that was fun. That's the first time I've been able to go out there and, and teach live. I, I told them that's probably going to be the only time uh, this semester, but it's a long haul from Arlington uh, to Granbury, but uh, nobody's on the road at 5 o'clock in the morning, so it's, it wasn't bad. But a great group, um, wonderful to be there with them. Um, we're going to cover some ground today. If, if you've been reading the devotionary, you've noticed that the, the readings have gotten longer and longer. Uh, it's the way it's going to be this, this, uh, the rest of this uh, semester because we're covering a big book, right? It's, it's a lot of territory. There's a lot of stuff going on, and there's no way I can cover all of it in these teachings. So that's the reason for the devotionary. If you want to dig deeper, if you want to know more verse by verse what's going on, Hopefully that'll answer your question. So I highly recommend that you, you do the devotionary readings. I get nothing out of that. You know, I'm just glad, glad you have them. I hope you take advantage of them because there's so many things I would love to cover, but I can't cover. And th these lectures are already longer than I'd like them to be, but um, we're going to cover a lot of ground this morning. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to jump right into it so we can cover as much as we can. Father, I thank you so much for these guys. Um, I, I don't take it for granted that they show up on a Tuesday morning before the crack of dawn and they, they come to hear your word. And I pray that you would help me to clearly communicate your word. And Lord, you know, it's my desire that every one of us would see you. Uh, that more than anything else, more than looking at the life of Moses and trying to figure out how do we uh, do the things that Moses did that are good and avoid the things that Moses did that were bad, that we would look for the God of Moses, that we would see you and understand that you are sovereign, you're always in control, you're working your plan, and we have the joy, the privilege, the honor of being part of that plan, and would, would we see that you have something you're wanting to do in our lives, that you've planned for our lives, and that maybe, Father, we're not walking according to that plan. Help us to see you clearly so that we would walk in step with you, your will, not our own. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I know you guys are, are like me when you think of the book of, of Exodus, uh, this is what you think of. Um, Charlton Heston, right? Charlton Heston is Moses. Uh, you know, I, I don't know when I first saw that movie, but I thought it was great because it's the first time for me as a kid uh, that the Bible kind of came to life. Now, there's a lot of inaccuracies in this movie, but it, it's like for a kid, it was like he, this guy became a hero. Like, look what he did. did. Look, look how great he is. And he he was powerful, he was strong, even Pharaoh feared him, but this is not the Moses we're going to look at. And we're, we're going to kind of begin to unpack his life as God calls this guy and sends him on a mission. And here's what I need you to do as we go through these passages. I need you to look for God, as we did last week. I need you to, where is God in this story? Where is God behind the scenes working in ways that Moses doesn't see, Pharaoh, of course, doesn't see. The people of Israel are completely oblivious to. But where is God working? And the reason I need you to be able to do it in these stories, because if you can do it in these stories, then you can hopefully step back and look, look for God in your own life. Where is God working in my life? And the good, the bad, the ugly of all that's going on in my life. What is he doing? Where is he taking me? What's his plan for me? Because we're, we're going to see with Moses, he's called of God, but he's a little reluctant, right? He's that reluctant deliverer. And so let's, let's look at what happens in his life. We know from last week that he's fled, right? He's uh, killed a he uh, an Egyptian in, in the guise of protecting a Hebrew. Uh, it's found out. Pharaoh finds out. His adopted grandfather finds out about this. And then he's out to kill Moses. So Moses runs. He flees from Pharaoh, stays in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So you almost have this picture of Pharaoh in kind of a, or uh, Moses in a depression. He's in a funk. He's having a pity party. He sits down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Now, if you remember the, the study in Genesis, there's, there's a lot of things that happen at wells. 
Uh, wells were the center of activity. The wells were where they went to get water to feed their flocks, to feed their family. It was a source of sustenance. They fought over wells. Uh, wells were important. So that's why so much happens around wells. Well, here we have it again. And again, look for God. Moses sits down at a well, just picks a well, sits down. He's obviously uh, refreshed himself, refreshed his livestock, whatever he's taken with him, we don't know. But there just happens to be these seven daughters of a priest of Midian. Now, it doesn't tell us in the passage, and it doesn't really tell us anywhere in the book of Exodus, but I believe this guy, this priest, was a priest of Yahweh. It'll, it'll become clear as we move on. So it just so happens that these seven daughters of this particular priest show up at the time that Moses shows up. And the she some shepherds came and drove these women away. They, they fought over water rights. You know, hey, we're here. We're going to water our flocks. You get out of here. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flocks. So here's Moses once again being the reluctant deliverer. He steps in and he, he pushes these people away. So when they came home to their father, well, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds. Now, what's important here is that how they described him. How do they describe him? He's an Egyptian. What does that mean? He looks like an Egyptian, dresses like an Egyptian. He, he has all the outward trappings of, of an Egyptian. But what is he really? He's a Hebrew. He knows it. They don't yet know it. So he's still obviously dressed like someone in Pharaoh's court because they recognize him not as a Hebrew, a Semite, but as an Egyptian. So they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. So he said to his daughters, where is he? You just left him there? This guy saves you and takes care of you and you just leave him by the well? Why have you not gotten him? Well, we skip forward, it says... He comes, they get him, they bring him, and then it says, Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. Where did that come from? You know, why did this guy just suddenly give his daughter to this guy, who he believes to be an Egyptian at this point? Something's going on behind the scenes, and I hope the something you see is God. God is working in ways that we need to understand, that we need to recognize. So he gives him his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So there's all kinds of stuff going on in this passage. That, again, he's gone to this place. He's met the, these seven uh, women. He marries one of them. They have a son, and he calls his name Gershom. Moses has basically begun to settle down. He's been cast out of Egypt, right? He's had to run because he killed an Egyptian. Pharaoh, his adopted grandfather, is out to kill him. And he's settled down now in Midian. He has no idea what's coming next. He's just gone on with his life. He's given up, it seems, on his goal of killing one Egyptian at a time. And he's just now living in Midian, far from Pharaoh. And he's going to go into this next phase of his life. Nothing wrong with that. He's not condemned for it. Um, but he's lost sight of something. It's interesting that he, the name he gives his son is Gershom, and it, it, it means exile. And he, it's a reference to himself because he knows something's not quite right. At least he seems to appear to know that. The, the word comes from another Hebrew word, which means to drive out, to cast out. He has been driven out of one place, and he's arrived in another place. And so he commemorates it by naming his son that. I've been cast out. I've been driven out. I'm now an exile. I become a, a resident foreigner in a foreign land is essentially what he's saying by naming his son that. It's like this son will now be a, a constant reminder to him that I'm not where I'm supposed to be. I don't belong in Midian. I, this is not my home. Why am I here? See, what's important is he's not where God wants him to be. Now, I'm not saying he's out of step with God. I'm not saying that him going to Midian was a sin. I think it's all part of God's plan. But he even recognizes that I don't belong here. Remember when he shows up at the well, he looks like an Egyptian. He's still got on his Egyptian clothes. He probably has his hair cut like an Egyptian. Uh, he's probably got the beard that they, they would wear. He, he looks like a royal member of the court of Pharaoh because he was. And he still got that persona about him, but he knows that, well, Egypt wasn't my home. 
I grew up in Pharaoh's court, but remember he had that battle of the soul where he began to wrestle with, why am I here? What, what's, what's my purpose for being raised in Pharaoh's court when I know that I'm a Hebrew and he's wrestling with who am I? He's having an, an identity crisis, right? And he knows Egypt's not his home, but he also recognizes neither is Midian. He's, he's like a man without a land. He's, he's wrestling with who am I? Why am I here? What's my purpose in life? And you know what? I, I hope that every guy in the room wrestles with that at some point. What's your purpose? Now, you have a land. You live here. Uh, you have a home. It's probably a nice home. You have a family. You have, have a job, or you had a job, and you've retired from that job. But, you, but what's your purpose? Why do you exist? And, and I want us to wrestle with that, because if you've been called by God through faith in Jesus Christ, then you have a purpose other than the one that maybe you think you have. So what's your purpose? I don't care if you're 18 or 80, God has a purpose for you. Why are you on this planet? Why are you still on this planet? Why, hasn't, why haven't you died? Why haven't you been hit by a bus? What, what, why are you still here? Is it just to enjoy your life and eke out whatever years you have left? No, it's because God has a purpose. And we're going to see that all over the life of this guy named Moses. See, another 40 years are going to pass. We, we saw last week that he was 40 when he became part of Pharaoh's court, and, or, or when he killed that Egyptian. He spent 40 years growing up in Pharaoh's court. Now, 40 years later, we're going to see that more time goes by, and he's still wrestling with who he, he is. So what happens in these passages is that something's going on in Midian with this guy, but there's something going on back in Egypt, right? He's left Egypt behind. He's probably forgotten all about those people living in Egypt. And you got to keep this in mind. His family's still there. His mom and dad are still there. He's got a, a brother, we'll find out, and a sister, Miriam, the one who saw him rescued out of the Nile by Pharaoh's daughter. And so he's still got people back there, but what's happening to them? Look at verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, his adopted grandfather, the guy who wanted to kill him. The guy who put in the edict to kill all the baby boys. That guy dies and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. So what's it telling us? That guy dies but nothing changes. When that Pharaoh dies, what happens? Another Pharaoh takes his place, his son. And he just keeps all the same pressure on the Israelites. We saw last week, it's not just the Israelites. It's anybody of Semitic origin. Anybody who has blood relations with the people of Abraham. He puts the pressure on him. The new Pharaoh keeps it up. And so the people cry out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. See, he's in Midian. He's married. He started a new life. He's got a new baby boy. Everything's going great in his life. But back home, his former home, things aren't so great. Another new king. Forty years later, he's alive and well. And it's almost like he's kind of forgotten that. He's given up on that part of his life, but has God. No, God's still got a plan for him. Yeah, he's about 80 now, so that's something to keep in mind. He's, he's an octogenarian. He's up there in years, and yet God's not done. His grandfather, adopted grandfather, wants to kill him. He's dead. I love how God works. You know, he did everything in his power to stop the people from multiplying. He failed, and now he's dead. And yet the Israelites are still suffering. You know, when, when I read these stories, I can't help but in, in my heart of hearts go, God, I, I, I just don't get this. I don't, why do you do this to people? Why would you do this to the people of Israel? Yes, I know they're disobedient. They've been worshiping other gods, but they're your chosen people. He has a plan. He's got a purpose behind everything. And those people are crying out. Remember, we talked about the fact that Getting them out of Egypt was going to be the easy part. Getting Egypt out of them was going to be the hard part. And, and so he's bringing the suffering upon them so that they will give up on those false gods that they worship. So they will let go of this love of the comfort zone in which they live. This, this homeland that's been theirs now for 400 years. He wants them to let go and follow him. So they're desperate. It says the people of Israel groan. They're moaning outwardly. They're crying out for help. 
But who are they crying to? And this is really important for us to understand. We, we read these passages and we automatically think, well they're, well, they're crying out to God. But we know that they're worshiping false gods. So they're crying out and God hears them, right? Because what capacity do any of the other gods have to hear? None. Why? Because they don't exist. They're not real. So they can't hear, but who does hear? God hears. But they're not necessarily crying out to God. They're not calling out to Yahweh because they have long ago forgotten about Yahweh. Now, we did see last week that there are remnants, small, small groups of people living in Egypt who still worship Yahweh, like those two Hebrew midwives, like the mother and father of Moses. There's still this remnant. There's always a remnant. There's always a small group of, peop- of God's people who stay faithful to God, even in the midst of difficulty. And yet the majority of the people have long ago forgotten about him. So are they calling out to him? We know from Joshua chapter 24, near the end of Joshua's life, here's what he says about the people of God. After they get into the land and he leads them, after they conquer most of the nations, it says, put away forever the idols your ancestors worshipped when they lived beyond the Euphrates River. In other words, the idols that Abraham worshipped when he was an idol worshipper, when God called him in Ur, and then also the gods that your relatives worshipped where? In Egypt. What's Joshua admitting? You, you were all idol worshipers at one time until God called you, until God heard you and then led you out. And then he has to remind them yet again, serve the Lord alone. What does Joshua know about the people he's led to victory? They still have a habit of turning to false gods. They still have a habit of turning their back on the one true God. So we do know that these people are probably not calling out to Yahweh. They're crying out to any of a number of gods that the Egyptians worship, probably the god of the Nile, Ra the sun god. They're they're probably calling out to that Pharaoh, that new Pharaoh who is supposed to be a god. They had a plethora of gods they could choose from. They're just crying out to any god that would listen. That's how desperate they are. But they're not necessarily calling out to him. Yet we read this in the, the scriptures. You know all the hardship that we have met, how our fathers went down to Egypt, and we lived in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians dealt harshly with us and our fathers. And when we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. Now, this this is written by Moses. Remember the five books of the Pentateuch used to be one book, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This is Moses writing in Numbers, part of the same book, and he seems to say, we cried out to the Lord. So, am I contradicting myself? Are they crying out to false gods or are they crying out to the Lord? Well, we see the same thing in Deuteronomy. The Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice, saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. So, what's, what's going on? Are they crying out to false gods or are they crying out to Yahweh? Well, you got you to gotta keep in mind, it's... Five books, all written by the same guy, but written over a period of time. And Deuteronomy and Numbers are written later in their journey to the new land, to the border of the Jordan River. And this is like in retrospect, being able to look back and say, you know who we really called out to? We were calling out to God and we didn't even know it. I I really think that's what he's saying. These passages are written after their deliverance. After God rescued them. It's like when you look back in your life and you, you, when you're going through the pain and the suffering, you don't see God anywhere in it. And then 20 years later, you look back and go, man, that was God all the way. That's what's going on here. They cried out and God heard because he's, he's the only one that could hear. There are no other gods that could hear their cries. The, the God of the Nile can't hear their cry. The God of the sun can't hear, hear their cry because they don't exist. This is after they knew, in retrospect, in hindsight, we cried out in pain and agony, and our our God heard us, the only God who could hear them. See, that's what's so cool. You you may be going through difficulty in your life, and you cry out, and you may not even cry out to God. 
you know God, you believe in God, you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, which gives, gives you access to God. But sometimes we get so desperate, we just cry out, we're just angry, we're frustrated, and we don't even direct it at God. And guess who hears it anyway? God. Your anger, your frustration, your fear, God hears. God heard them, and God's going to respond. Listen to what it says. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Three different things here. God heard, God remembered, and God knew. This couple of verses, you don't have to look for God, right? Because he's all, all over it. He's, he's wrapped up in it. He, he hears, he remembers, and God knew. One of the things that we wrestle with sometimes is we read verses like this, and we think, well, did he forget? Was he asleep at the wheel? Had he turned his back on him? Had he been, he just suddenly heard? It's been going on for years now, decades. Is he just now hearing their groanings? No, he's heard all along. What, what's important for us to understand is that from our human perspective, sometimes it feels like God, okay, he finally heard me. You know, he, he's not been listening for years now, and now he finally heard me. He finally woke up. He finally responded. But God's been involved all along. You just don't know it. You just don't see it. You don't recognize it. See, he heard, he remembered, he saw, he knew. This is an anthropomorphism. It's man's attempt to understand God. And what we do with God is we tend to make God human. And we give God human attributes. And so we say that he heard, he remembered, he saw. See, God doesn't have eyes or ears because he's a spiritual being. I don't know what God looks like, neither do you. But God doesn't look like this. God doesn't appear in this form. He doesn't have to have eyes and ears. He doesn't have to see. He doesn't have to remember because he can't forget. God never forgets. It's not like he, he looks down one day and, you know, oh, my gosh, I got busy elsewhere and Ken screwed up again. Ken's, Ken's in trouble again. How did this happen? No, he knows everything before it even happens. And so these are just man's, man's attempt to say, I was in the midst of trouble, and then God heard my cry, and he remembered me. No, he never forgot me. From your perspective, it feels like he just remembered. No, he's known all along. He's just now acting. There's nothing he doesn't know at any time. He's never surprised. That's why I can't encourage you enough to confess your sins to God. The scriptures say if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to what? Forgive your sins. But you and I both hold back sins. Why? I don't want him to know. What, what an insane idea that, that I'm not going to tell God something I did as if he won't know. So you can do that with your wife, right? For a time. And they have this uncanny ability of finding out. But see, God knows. God knows what you're thinking before you think it. He knows what you're going to do before you do it. Because he's divine. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. So God has not forgotten. God has not been busy elsewhere. God has known all about what's going on. You know who's forgotten? It's Moses. Moses has forgotten all about these people. He, he's not worrying about them. He's got his own new life in Midian, but God doesn't forget. God is always active, whether you see it or not, realize it or not, whether you believe it or not. God is active in your life right here, right now. And he's not knee-jerk reacting. He's not responding to something. He's not looking down and going, oh, my gosh, I got to get busy. I had no idea this was going to happen. At no point in God's life, and his life has always been and always will be, has he ever knee-jerk reacted to anything. That's amazing to me. I knee-jerk react to all kinds of things every day. I plan my day. I start my day. It seems to be going well. Something negative happens, and I knee-jerk react. And my knee-jerk reactions always make it worse. It never gets better. But see, God doesn't have to do that. He's not responding to anything. He's just continuing to implement the plan he's had in place from eternity past. That should blow every guy away in this room, that your life has been preordained by God. Every aspect of it. Even the bad things that if taking place in your life. Bad decisions that you have made are all, all part of God's preordained plan for your life. That doesn't mean God made you do what you did. 
But God has used that as part of his plan to bring you to where you are right now. And guess what? He's not done yet. He's still got more things he wants to do. He's got more things he wants to do with these people. He's got more things he wants to do with Moses. But Moses is busy doing what? Well, he's keeping flock. He's gone on with his new life. He's keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So he's going through the motions. He's going through his daily activities. And one of the things he does as a shepherd is he has to move his flocks around from one place to another. And he comes to a place called Horeb, which in the Bible is also known as Mount Sinai, which will become very important as we move further into the story. This is not a new excursion. This is probably someplace he went on his circuit of pasturing places. And, and he's, he's just going through his daily routine, gets up makes some coffee, checks the news, says goodbye to his wife, takes his flocks, and today it led him to Horeb. Probably not the first time he's been there, but things are going to be different. Now, this is where I believe Horeb is. Um, if you read the devotionary, there was a map in there that showed Horeb as being over on the left near the tip of the Sinai Peninsula. That's where I've always believed it to be. But the more I've studied this, the more it makes sense that it's across that body of water and it's in Midian. Because where does it say he went? Midian. Where does he take his flocks? To Horeb or Mount Sinai. And, and a lot of scholars now have come to the conclusion that Mount Sinai is not in the Sinai Peninsula, which was under Egyptian control. But it's over further to the east. The fact is, none of us know. We aren't really sure where it is, but I believe it, it's over there in that region because he wanted to get as far away from Egypt as he possibly could. So what happens? He, he's there watering his flock, feeding his flock, doing whatever he's doing with sheep, and it says, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Now, I guarantee you this never happened before. He had never seen anything like this before in his life. He's, he's out there in the basically the wilderness, He's probably at the base of that mountain, and he sees a bush, and it's on fire, which probably wasn't rare because it's the wilderness, and fires probably started pretty easily with dried-up bushes. But it gets his attention, and he looks, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. What's important to see here is that it says the angel of the Lord appeared to him. What's that all about? What's going on in this passage? Who is this angel of the Lord? Now, remember, he's writing this later. This is Moses recollecting and putting down for us what happened that day. And he recognizes later that, that, that it was the angel of the Lord. He didn't know that immediately. He didn't see the burning bush and go, oh, that's the angel of the Lord. No, he saw a burning bush that didn't burn up. And he was attracted to it. But it says the angel of the Lord. This is this 80-year-old man meeting his maker for the first time. Physically meeting his maker. We know of no other instance where he has had an encounter with God Almighty. This is what's called a theophany. A, a, a visual image of God appearing in this form. Uh, the basic definition is appearance of God, an intense manifestation of the presence of God that is accompanied by an extraordinary visual display. The angel of the Lord is used about 50 times in the Old Testament. And it's always in some visual form. The angel of the Lord appeared. It's like the angel that wrestled with Jacob. And yet we know later he refers to him as God. It's God taking on a form that can be seen. Uh, there, there are many who believe this to be the pre-incarnate Christ. Uh, it's, it's before he took on the form of Jesus. I, I can go either way with this. If it's the pre-incarnate Christ... It's still God because it's part of the Godhead. But I, I'm not going to fall on my sword over whether it is or whether it isn't. All I know is it's God because that's what the passage tells me. He meets God. He's in the presence of God and he pretty quickly realizes that he's in the presence of God. Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why does he know that? What, what makes him aware of that? Because the bush burns but it's not consumed. There's something supernatural going on here. This is not normal. He's attracted to it. He wants to know more about it. And then it says God called him out of the bush. Can you imagine that? 
you know, we read these stories and we just read past them because we've heard them so many times. And yet you're standing there wa watching this bush in flames, but it doesn't consume. And then you hear a voice. I would have run. I mean, I would have taken off. But he doesn't. He, he just hears this voice calling. Remember, he's writing in retrospect and he recognizes now that it's God. And then that voice says, the place in which you're standing is holy ground. Again, first time he's ever had an encounter with God Almighty, with Yahweh. And he's like riveted. B bush that doesn't burn up. Voice that calls out, this is holy ground. And it says he's afraid to look at God. He was transfixed before he heard the voice, right? Man, look at this. I, I, I'm sure if there were other shepherds with him, there's no indication anybody's with him, but it's almost like he, he's turned around and going, do you see? This? And he starts talking to the sheep. Look at this. And then the voice, and then he didn't want to look at it anymore. Was he recognized? There's a higher power speaking to him. The bush is just a symbol of something far greater. God is talking to him, and he's afraid to look at God. And then the Lord tells him something. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because they're taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them. There it is again. I've seen. I've seen. It's almost like he's saying, Moses, have you seen? Hey, Moses, remember the people back in Egypt that you left behind? The, the one Hebrew that you rescued from the Egypt? Do you remember all those people, your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister? I see them. I've heard their cry. I know their sufferings. Do you? Are you aware of what's going on there? I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. I, I've, I'm aware. Are you? See, what's he doing? He's shepherding his sheep. He's married to his new wife. He's got a new baby boy. Everything's great. He's happy. He's content. He's kind of loving it. But here's what's interesting. God says, I've heard. I've seen. I know what's gone. I've come down to do something. And then in verse 10, it says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh. And this is when it all goes to heck in a handbasket for, for Moses. Like, whoa, 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 what? I thought you just said you heard, you saw, you've come down, you're going to deliver. And then he goes, I'm going to send you. See, this is where it gets dicey for all of us, right? You know, when, when God puts a call on us and says, I want you to do X, and we go, whoa, mm-mm, I'm not a paid professional. I, I didn't go to seminary. I, I'm not a pastor. That's not my job. That's somebody else's job. I can't tell you how many calls I get from people who call me up and say, hey, I just wanted to tell you about so-and-so. What's going on? Well, they're, he's not doing well. He's in the hospital. And I'm like, have you gone to see him? Well, no. Well, what do you want me to do? I want you to go see him. I don't even know him. You're in a small group with him. He sits at your table every week. You go see him a lot. I don't know what to say. And you think I do? You think I just suddenly have had this wise knowledge that I can impart to people when they're in the hospital? No, I've had experience with it maybe more than you have, but God has called you. But see, I love this. God says, come, I will send you, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. This guy is, is sitting there going, whoa, wait a minute. I'm a shepherd. I, I kind of like it here. I got a brand new baby boy. I've got a wife. And you know how wise are God. And he's going to go into excuse mode pretty quickly. But Moses immediately is going to respond and say, what? I'm sending you. Whoa. I don't want to be sent. I don't have time to be sent. He says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? I, I love that question. Who am I? Who am I, God? I, I don't have any credentials. I'm not anybody. I'm, I'm just this this." nobody I'm just a shepherd God he immediately goes into excuse mode and he disqualifies himself I don't know all of you in the room very well some I know better than others but I I do know that you disqualify yourself far too easily I don't know enough I'm not smart enough I don't know enough scripture and you disqualify yourself and you don't think God could or would or want to ever use you and nothing could be further from the truth I've seen God use guys like you more than any pastor I've ever met, including me, if you'll just let him use you. But what does he do? He disqualifies. I'm damaged. 
we don't get the whole conversation here. I don't think what we see in these chapters is all that Moses had to say. I think there's far more things that went across there. Remember who's writing this? Moses. He has the convenience of living, leaving out certain portions. I'm amazed he wrote what he did, right? I would have not included any of this if I was writing my story. But he does. See, he, he was a murderer, right? He was a convicted murderer. He had killed a man. And he was under a verdict of death. He's 80 years old. I'm sure that didn't just pass his mind. He's thinking, oh, now? 40 years after I leave, now you're going to call me? Whoa, whoa, whoa. No, I am way too, I'm, I am, I got nothing, God. I can take care of sheep, but I can't lead a nation out of captivity. He's a failed, flawed leader from his perspective. See, that's what is amazing to me. You and I have sinned, right? I know we have. Uh, we've made mistakes. We have failed at business. Maybe you've failed in a marriage. Maybe you've, um, something has happened in your life where you disqualify yourself from ever being used by God. And God's going, no, wait a minute. I make a habit of using flawed and failed people. Think about the disciples, right? What a group of bozos. And yet who chose them? Jesus Christ himself. How did he change the world through those men? At least 11 of them. See, th this, is, this is what we do. We self-disqualify. We tell God, not me. I, I, I'm damaged. I, I can't be used. And this man is going to push back on God. Remember, he's having an encounter with God Almighty, and he's going to begin to debate with God. Not me. Not now. Pick somebody else. He's a man of few words of his own admission, and yet he has plenty of excuses to give God why he should not be used. Listen to what he says. Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? What if they don't believe me or listen to me? What if they say the Lord never appeared to you? So he's already jumping ahead and going, oh, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. This is going to go real, real bad, real fast. Do you not understand what you're asking here? And I love this because he's talking to the almighty, all-knowing God of the universe. Yeah, I kind of know. And I've got a plan. And guess what? You're part of the plan. But those questions quickly turn into excuses, right? That's what we do. Well, I can't today. I'm too busy. Not now. Maybe later. I don't have time. I don't feel like it. Whatever excuse you come up with, he goes, Lord, I'm not very good with words. Man, how many times have we said that? Hey, I want you to go across the street and share the gospel with your, your neighbor. Mm, I'm, not, I'm not good at that. Well, I didn't ask you to be good at it. I just asked you to be faithful. I'll give you the words to say if you'll just be faithful. I'm not asking you to save them. I'm just asking you to share the good news with them. But see, he goes, I, I, I'm not very good with words. I, I, I get tongue-tied. There are those who think he had a speech impediment. I, I don't think it's that, that difficult. I think he just, it's like I don't think well on my feet. I don't like standing in front of crowds. I, I'm, I'm too shy. I'm an introvert. I get my words all messed up. I, I'm not the guy you want. I, I, I don't, no, I'm not, I'm not the guy. Don't choose me. Then he ultimately says, send somebody else. Boy, how many times have we said that? Not me, him. Not now, later. See, he's, he's all about excuses. I, I, I'm not your guy. Don't choose me. Don't use me. Don't send me. See, here's what I think has happened in 40, 40 years living in Midian. Remember, he used to be 40 years in Pharaoh's court, now 40 years living as a shepherd. He's gotten comfortable and complacent. He likes his life. What's uncanny is how much this mirrors the Israelites. They liked their life until the persecution started, right? Until it got rough. Well, he likes life in Midian. He's satisfied. He's set in his ways. I like where I live. I like my job. I'm content. I'm, I'm self-consumed. It's about me. Don't send me there. I know I've got family there. I know they're your people, but I, what about my life? What about my comfort? He's become fruitful. He's got a son, and it won't be long before he has a second son. And he's forgotten all about God's people. But he's also forgotten something really important. He's forgotten that God had called him to deliver him. We looked at this last week. That he knew that God was going to use him. Just like his mom and dad knew that he was 
a special, unique child that God was going to use. Remember that, Steve, that uh, sermon Stephen uh, preached to the Jews. One day when Moses was 40 years old, he assumed his fellow Israelites would realize that God had sent him to rescue them, but they didn't. See, this is 40 years previously when he killed that Egyptian to protect a Hebrew. He thought, he knew God had called him to deliver. He just did it too soon and he did it his way, not God's way. He's forgotten all about that, right? What drove him to kill that Egyptian? He was abusing an Israelite. And I'm not going to stand for that. Now, 40 years later, he's forgotten that. But he's also forgotten God. He's forgotten who God is. And this is really uh, significant to me that as, he, as he's having this encounter with God, it's like God is reintroducing himself to this man. He's letting him know who I am. Because remember, the whole, the whole premise of Exodus is that you may know that I am God. He's revealing himself to these people. And he's beginning with this one man. That you, Moses, may know that I am God. So what does he tell him? I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. It's interesting, he says, I'm the God of your father. What father? The father who protected him along with his wife and put him in the Nile. See, this tells me that his father and mother were Yahweh worshipers. But he says, this is who I am. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and even your father back in Egypt. And he's going to repeat this three times in just a series of verses. What's he telling him? I'm God. Why is he having to tell him that? Because he's forgotten that. He, he, he hears a voice. He knows it's powerful. He knows it's, it's some kind of supernatural divine being, but he believes in probably other divine beings at this point from his 40 years living in Egypt. And then he says, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name, what am I going to tell them? I love this little exchange. He's, he's wrestling with, who am I? Who, you know, wh why me? Why are you sending me? And now God says, I'm the God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he goes, okay, well, wait a minute. If I obey, he, he's, he's not saying I will, but he says, if I go, if I come to the people, and I tell them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask, well, who's he? What do I tell them? This is fascinating to me, right? Have you forgotten so much about God that you don't even know his name anymore? You don't even know who he is? Who, who should I say you are? This is all about a guy struggling with the identity of God. Who are you, God? What, what kind of God are you? Remember, week one, I asked you to fill out that little survey, and, and I asked you to check off the names that come to mind or the attributes that come to mind when you think of God. The most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think about God. And so he's asking, who are you, God? I don't really know who you are. I see a burning bush that doesn't get consumed. I hear this booming voice, but who exactly are you? He's asking God to identify himself. Tell me who you are. And you know, we do this every day. We ask God to show himself in a certain way. I will believe you if you do this. I will believe you if you perform this miracle for me. I will have faith in you if you rescue me from this. Identify yourself. Prove yourself to me. And I love how he uses this generic term Elohim. Elohim was a Hebrew word, and they used it of all gods. They used it of God Almighty, but they also used it of other gods. So if they were referring to a god of the Egyptians, they used Elohim. And so he just uses the generic term and he wants this Elohim that's speaking to him out of the bush to be more specific. Who exactly are you? The burning bush is great, wonderful, amazing, but doesn't tell me enough about you. Who are you, God? What's your name? And I, he, he basically talks to God in the third person. What is this God's name? He's talking to him. What's his name? Tell me your name. And it's all because he has no relationship with God at this point. He has no personal identity with God. He's not really seen God in his life, even though God's been there all along. And he sees this Elohim as aloof, distant, just some disembodied deity. Now he sees a bush, but he knows that's not God. So who are you? 
And for years now, this God has been out of sight, out of mind, invisible, untouchable, unknowable. And he says, I need a name. Tell me your name. And God obliges. God says, I am who I am. And I would have gone, okay, what? What does that even mean? We wrestle with it today, and there are theologians who debate this and continue to debate exactly what God meant by this. But God says, I am who I am. Say, say this to the people. I am has sent me to you. And then God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. He reiterates that statement again. This is who I am. I am. <laughs> okay, that's great. But I asked your name. I am. It's like the, the old uh, who's on first routine. You know, no, I asked your name. I am. Okay, I know who you are, but who, who are you? I am. What's he telling him here? This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. I am who I am. This is God identifying himself, telling Moses who I am. He's not one of many gods. He's not a regionally based God. He's just not one more God in a whole plethora or pantheon of gods. He's the one true Elohim. I am who I am. But again, that, that doesn't answer the question, right? What does that even mean? I love this from Isaiah 45. I am the Lord. There is no other God. I've equipped you for battle, though you don't even know me. So all the world from east to west will know there is no other God. I am the Lord and there is no other. What is God telling you and I? There is no other God. There are no other Elohims. There's one Elohim and it's him. I am who I am. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. You'll hear me use that that phrase that name because that was the Hebrew name for, for Yahweh and they they eventually just rendered it as four letters because they were afraid to write the name of God they were afraid to say the name of God it's a tetragrammaton sometimes it's rendered in your Bible as Yahweh sometimes it shows up as Jehovah but it's God Almighty he's the existing one I am who I am and I always will be that's essentially what he's telling him I am the only God who has ever been and whoever will be. There is no Ra, sun God. There is no God of the Nile. There are no other gods. I was, I am, and I always will be. That's exactly what he's telling him. And he needed to hear that. And then he's going to give him proof, signs and wonders. He gives him instructions. He backs up his words with actions. He says, I've called you. I've got a plan for you. And here's basically, guys, here's what he's telling him. I'm the same God who created the universe. I'm the same God who destroyed the world. I'm the same God who spared Noah. I'm the same God who destroyed Sodom. I'm the same God who spared Lot. I'm the same God who gave Sarah a son and Rebecca a son. See, he would have known these stories because his mother raised him until he was weaned. He knew the stories. I'm the same God who sent Joseph to Egypt. I'm the same God who will send you. I am who I am and I always will be. So you can know who I am. He gives him these signs. He says, take your staff, throw it down. And he does, and it turns into a snake. And then he says, pick it up. You've, you've heard that story. I'd have gone, no, you pick it up. But he picks it up, and it turns right back into a, a snake. He turns his hand leprous, and then he puts it back in his garment, and it, it's healed. And then he says, I'm going to allow you to turn water into blood when you go see Pharaoh. He gives them these signs so that you might know who I am. I am God Almighty. And because you have those signs and you perform them in front of the people, they too will believe. So we fast forward. He and his brother come together and they go before the people. And the people believed when they saw the signs. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshiped. This is huge, right? This is like the biggest moment in the story thus far. He obeys, he goes, they do the signs in front of the people, and just as God said, the people believed. They bowed and they worshiped. Now remember, they have not worshiped Yahweh for, for centuries. And because of those signs and because they came with the name of God and the message of God, they worship God. But it's just the beginning of all that's about to happen. See, we think this resolves the story. If you're reading this for the first time, you're thinking, oh, it's going to be great now. It's going to get worse. They receive the words, but Pharaoh won't. 
And we're not going to dig into all that happens, but the good news of God's deliverance is going to produce some very bad consequences. And again, I read that and I go, man, I, God, I don't understand how you work. And you know what? That's okay. I don't need to understand. I just need to believe and obey. And so God is going to say, let my people go. But Pharaoh's going to say, mm -mm, you'll have to kill me first. I'm not going to let these people go. Another Pharaoh, new Pharaoh, same problem. I'm going to stand against the will of God. And the storm begins. They're going to be enslaved for 40 years. And Moses shows up and it gets even worse. See, they heard, God heard their cries. God sends a deliverer and it only gets worse. Persecution increases, workload multiplies, condition worsens, hope diminishes. Everything's going to heck in a handbasket. They worship, right? And yet things get worse. And so they explode in anger at Moses. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them. They came out from Pharaoh and they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge you because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. They yell at Moses and then Moses yells at God. Isn't that how we do it? It's like you go home and kick the dog. He kicks God. Moses turns to the Lord and said, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. I do not recommend anyone ever talking to God like that. It's not that he can't handle it. But this is a bold statement on behalf of this guy. You have not delivered your people at all. See, God's will was not going Moses' way. He thought he's going to blow into Dodge. Everything's going to go great. And it's not happening like he thought. Even though God said this is exactly what's going to happen. But it's not what Moses wanted. He wanted immediate deliverance. He's hoping for instant results. And he wants gain without pain. I live my life wanting gain without pain. I want everything to go smoothly. But here, here's what Jesus said. On earth you will have many trials and sorrows. But take heart. I've overcome the world. And then in Acts, after preaching good news in Derby, Paul and Barnabas, they strengthened the believers and encouraged them to continue in the faith, reminding them that we must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. I don't like those verses. I wouldn't put them on a coffee mug and I wouldn't put them on a plaque on my desk, but they tell me the truth about my God. He is always working and sometimes that work includes suffering so that I might trust him more. So here's your questions. If you could only choose one word to describe God, what, what would it be and why? Again, it has nothing to do with this passage. Don't think about Moses. Don't think about the people. But if you had to describe God, what would that word be? It could be negative. He can handle it. The guys at your table can handle it. But what would that word be? Why do we expect gain without pain in our spiritual lives when it doesn't seem to work anywhere else? You ever gotten in better shape without a little bit of pain? You ever gotten your finances put back together without a little suffering and cutting back here or there? In what ways were the increased trials that the Israelites faced a way for them to get to know God better? How have you seen this work in your own life? Well, Father, I thank you for, once again, these men and their faithfulness to come and be part of this study. And I pray, Father, that as they talk around the tables, that you would speak into each one of their hearts, open up their lips to say the things you would have them to say, even if it comes in the form of questions, doubts, fears. Lord, we just want to know you. We want to know you better not cerebrally, just not in our heads, but in our hearts, so that we might trust you more and live for you more faithfully. So again, bless the time around the tables, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.